can't think of a another time in the history of the world that there has been such a concentration of, shall we say, godly, spiritual, um, theologically rich, what John Piper calls redwoods, oaks of righteousness in the history of the church than in 17th century England, Puritan England. So many godly people coming together. I can't think of a greater concentration of them any time in the world, and that's a big statement. But what's a bigger statement is Wesley, uh, who said that he learned more about Christianity from his mother than from all of the theological giants in England. And I think that's amazing because today is Mother's Day, and on Mother's Day we are thinking of all that our moms have meant to us. And we have just celebrated, really, and we have grieved over both of those emotions coming together the the loss, on the one hand, of a mother-like figure in our own congregation, Dot Hope, who was a shining example for us, for all mothers, uh, of what to be, what to strive for as a mother. And if you have not read that letter that was read at the funeral, I just ask you to find him, to get a hold of that letter. It was so moving. Uh, The letter that Dot wrote to her son, Bob, and I sat there sitting next to Tina, and I, and I felt, I, I, I was so um, emotionally moved by that, that I, I, couldn't, I almost couldn't handle it. And I felt myself getting choked up. And uh, I've never, that's a weird sensation, like when your throat starts to close up, you can tell I'm a man, because this has never happened to me. <laughs> and, but it happened to me at the funeral, my throat started to close up, and I started, man, this is amazing. This letter, the, the, the love soaked all over that letter, the kindness of, of a mom's heart, the, the, the pushing her son to love Jesus. Get a hold of that letter and read it. And uh, thank God for Dot and her example. And uh, it's been said, moms are great, but it's been said that a mom is someone who, when there's five people in the room and there's only four pieces of pie, promptly states, well, I've really not been that keen on pie. <laughs> and that's an amazing thing because moms are so selfless so often. Instead of cutting the pie in half and taking a sliver for herself, she's quite happy to give it to someone else. And I think it's interesting that we are in Mark chapter 6 because Mark 6 is an example of another mother that we will come across. But let me say this at the outset. This is a mom that should never be emulated, ever, for the history of your life. Never emulate this mother. This has got to be one of the worst examples of a mom in all of the Bible. Terrible example. Her name is Herodias. You will see her. She is perverted. She is twisted. She is evil. She is sinister. She is dark. She's a bad, bad, bad woman. And uh, in God's providence, we find ourselves in Mark chapter 6 on Mother's Day. So I pray that um, this will help us as we think through it. Now, there's a window of opportunity to uh, respond to the Word of God. Uh, Every time the Word of God is preached, and sometime that this window will close, I don't know when, but I can tell you this much, 
The window of opportunity will not always be open to hear God's word. Last week we saw the disciples, as Pastor Ted was preaching, going through the villages around Nazareth. And they're preaching as Jesus had instructed them. And Jesus sends them out two by two. And they're witnessing wonderful signs of the presence of the kingdom. Many demons, for example, are fleeing in terror. And many people are being healed. Great miraculous signs and wonders are taking place. And it was during this particular phase of Jesus' ministry that King Herod got wind of all that was going on. And it troubled him in his spirit, as Derek just read. He was worried. He heard about all of this. And this is the link between verse 13 and 14. Look at verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus had become known. News travels and people talk. And Herod found out. And the incident before us of King Herod hearing about this, and we discover that he's troubled by this news in verse 14. Who is Jesus? Who is this man? Well, in every generation, every thoughtful person who comes across Jesus, either in story form or in reading, has to ultimately come to an explanation of who Jesus is by himself. Even if that is ultimately to dismiss Jesus. People have ideas. And it may be that part of the reason why you're here this morning is not just because it's Mother's Day, but you're also on a quest yourself to understand who Jesus is. You've heard things, you've read stories, you have... You have heard preachers, you have been in church, but you are on a, on a quest, if you will, trying to solve this jigsaw puzzle. Who exactly is Jesus? And you started to put the pieces together, and you attend Heritage this morning as a means of helping to solve that all-important question. And if that's you, I'm glad you're here. And I commend to you the reading of the Gospel of Mark. But you see, the event before us, is something that we are all very familiar with. When we look around at the people around us at the grocery store or we go to the airport and we see people there, we see the same thing that we see in this text. The elements of this story are amazing. Mark is a fantastic story writer. And the elements of this story are, are, are amazing because what you see here is a, is a piece of fabric that represents really the spiritual DNA of both the wicked and the righteous. This is, a, this is a story of contrast here. Essentially what we have is Herod and John, John and Herod. Different men with two radically different worldviews. On the one hand, we see a wicked man given over to the lust of his flesh. And on the other hand, we see a righteous man walking in the Spirit. So more specifically, this text is the tale of a sad collapse of the conscience of King Herod. And the triumphant life and martyrdom of a man of God. So my desire this morning is to walk through this story, and I want to make applications to our lives from this story, but I'm not going to stop with a character study, because ultimately this text intends to drive us to a deeper point, and that point I trust you will understand at the end. So first, let's observe Herod. Let's observe Herod. Herod is a man that is an example of what every lost man is like. You want to know what the DNA, the structure of a lost man, of a wicked man is like? Just look at Herod. The parallels here are striking. We have a picture here of a man who loves himself. He is happily ruling over his own sphere, over his own area of control. He loves his money. 
He loves success. He loves prestige. He is jealous for the honor and the praise of men. Women are a weakness for him. And strong drink and illicit sexual gratification are his vices. He's blind. He's unbelieving. He's doubting. And he focuses on everything that is temporal and nothing that's eternal. This guy's lost. He's really lost. But I want you to notice with me several specific traits of uh, Herod. Look at verse 14. First, observe then, first, Herod's troubled conscience. His troubled conscience. See, verse 14 says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Look at verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Look, this is the state of all men before Christ, is that they live with a troubled conscience. During Herod's time, uh, people were trying to figure out where the miraculous powers of Jesus had come from. There's all of these assessments. You'll see them in the text there. Look down in verse 14. Some said he's John the Baptist. Others said he's Elijah or one of the prophets. Well, whatever people are saying, in verse 16, we see very clearly that Herod himself has come to a decision of who, of who uh, John the Baptist is, of who Jesus is. He thinks Jesus is John the Baptist. He thinks Jesus is John, the man that he beheaded. Why does he think that? I mean, what would cause him to think such a thing? This is not the voice of a news reporter. This is not the voice of a journalist. This is the voice of a troubled conscience. You see, at this point, Herod's imagination is running wild. It's running wild. He does not know, even though John the Baptist was already dead, Herod thinks that he has come back to life to get revenge on him. That's who he thinks Jesus is. You see, basically what's happening is Herod is running a horror film in his mind. He killed John the Baptist and he is thinking, oh no, he's come back to get me. And what's driving it all is his bad conscience. The idea of a man preaching repentance in the surrounding area. That's what Jesus was doing. He was preaching repentance in the surrounding area. And that idea sounds so much like John the Baptist. And so he knows that he killed John and his conscience is troubled. For while it had not bothered him for a time, presumably his conscience had... Had, it had waned. He was no longer concerned or worried about the fact that he had killed John the Baptist. But now, but now when he gets news of Jesus in the desert region preaching repentance, he starts to worry and his conscience starts to trouble him. Uh, is, this is how it works, isn't it? He kills John the Baptist. And then he begins to excuse himself. Well, ultimately it was Herodias who asked for his head. It wasn't me. And he begins to excuse himself that he is ultimately not to blame for this. And friends, how adept are we at doing the very thing, this very same thing? By shifting our sin and blame to someone else. And why do we do this? Why do we do this? Ultimately, because we want to remove those terrible feelings of guilt. Make note of this. The removal of guilt can only come through the cross of Jesus Christ. Your attempts to suppress what you know to be true only keep you from coming to Christ. Only in Him can you find real, lasting, and final forgiveness. Only in Jesus will you find this peace. 
See, the guilty conscience of an unforgiven man will haunt him and torment him repeatedly. And such a conscience will not be quieted, which is why a man will do about anything to hush the roar of a guilty conscience. So it is with Herod. When he heard about Jesus preaching in the desert, he couldn't help but think of John the Baptist. And he said, It is I who beheaded John. In the still of the night, when his conscience actually had a hearing, he knew full well that it was he who killed John the Baptist. See, there's no more excuses now. No more excuses about the fact that it was Herodias who asked for his head, or the fact that her daughter had seduced him, or the fact that he gave a rash promise while he was intoxicated, or his desire to keep that promise to be true to his word. No, no, no. When the conscience speaks, all excuses and all attempts to diminish the guilt of sin shrivel to nothing. And you know this in your own life. I think we all know this, don't we? In those dark moments when we, our conscience begins to haunt us. Look at verse 17. Mark uses what we could call in writing a flashback. We see this in the movies all the time. And this is a flashback technique. And what he's doing here is he's trying to give the reader insight into why Herod is so troubled. So what he does is he goes into all this background information about John the Baptist and his beheading. See, because the story is really about Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is out and his disciples, and they're preaching repentance. So why this odd story right in the middle about John the Baptist? This is a writing technique. What he's saying is Herod catches wind that Jesus and his disciples are preaching, and that reminds him of how he killed John the Baptist. So, oh yeah, his troubled conscience. Let's go back and retell the story of John the Baptist. That's what's going on here. <clears throat> so, we see this strange phrase at the, beginning, at the end of verse 17. What does it say? It says this, On account of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. <laughs> okay, I had to read that a couple of times to even understand what it was saying. Alright, so he, this is a mess. In fact, Herod's life is a mess. And this is clear not only from the text, but from history. So let me provide some insight into what's going on at the end of verse 17 by giving you a, a, a little bit of background about Herod and the Herodian dynasty. Alright, look, it basically starts like this. Herod the Great is, is the king who is in control during the time of Jesus' birth. And he has this major dynasty that, that comes down like this. It fans out. And all these Herods underneath him. <clears throat> in the Herodian dynasty, they were colonial rulers over Judea and Galilee under imperial Rome. And the Herod of Mark 6 in this text is called Herod the Tetrarch. It's called Herod the Tetrarch. His father was King Herod the Great. He was the one who was king when Jesus was born. He was the one who was responsible for that massacre, you remember, of all the children in Bethlehem, Matthew chapter 2. That's the only time we read about Herod the Great. The whole, all the rest of the occurrences of Herod in the, in the Gospels is this Herod in Mark 6. Herod the Tetrarch. Okay, so that, Herod then was the one that we usually hear about. This Herod of Mark 6. And Herod the Great died. When this great figure died, what he did was he divided his kingdom really into four sections. And, and his sons then began to rule different sections of his kingdom. And Herod Antipas, which is the Herod in Mark 6, is one of those rulers who is ruling a fourth of the kingdom, which is why he's called a Tetrarch, because he's only ruling one-fourth of the kingdom. Anyway, his name is Herod Antipas, and that's who is here in Mark 6. Well, 
Anyway, one of the basic elements then of effective leadership is while Herod is ruling here in Mark chapter 6, is any effective ruler of that time would be someone who would not want to disrupt the moral sensibilities of the people. I mean, you can understand this. Here we are in, in the United States and America, and we are on the cusp of, of major decisions that are being made that affect the moral landscape of America. And we're, 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 we care about that. That means something to us. So if you have a ruler who's ruling over a kingdom, and he, and he, and he doesn't have any morals, or his morals are just willy-nilly, whatever he feels like doing, that's going to affect the moral sensibilities of the people. And, and this is this Herod. This Herod seems to care less about what anybody else thinks about him. And so he's quite happy to trample upon their moral sensibilities. This, this is disturbing. But to be fair, look where he came from. He comes from Herod the Great, who was one of the evil, most wicked and evil men in the Bible. So my guess is, is that this Herod has inherited all of the bad character traits of his father. This has got to be one of the most dysfunctional families in the Bible. It's just, it's unbelievable. See, not only was Herod the Great into polygamy, we have documentation of the fact that he had ten wives. Ten wives. But just prior to his death in 4 BC, he became almost insanely suspicious and he started murdering member after member of his own family until it became a Jewish saying that it's safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. I mean, this is a messed up family. Well, anyway, somehow, one of his sons from his fourth marriage managed to survive, and that was Herod Antipas here in Mark 6, probably because he was a young boy at that time. And he grew up with several stepmoms. He grew up with an aloof, uninvolved, sexually deviant, and murderous father. So I wonder, what's going to happen to Herod Antipas? Maybe you're thinking the same thing as I am. Like father, like son. A murderous father. Surely not. Surely he wouldn't repeat the mistakes of his father. Well, note then the second thing about Herod. He was a lover of pleasure. Herod was a lover of pleasure. It appears that Herod was willing to go to about any extent to maintain his pleasure. After all, ultimately it was pleasure that he was after. The whole passage makes this clear. Um, he's just in it for himself all the way through. And as Blaise Pascal said, listen to this. Blaise Pascal says, all men seek happiness. This without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The will never takes the least step but towards this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves trying to escape misery. Friends, this is why man always does what he desires most at any given moment. Take, for example, a sinful desire. Let's say a, a man is, is, is sinfully enticed to something, and, and he's tempted to do that, but he fails to resist the temptation to it. He gives in to it. Why does he give in to that? Why, why does he not resist it? The, the answer is because ultimately he desires the vice more than he desires the resistance of it. That's his highest inclination of his will. Jonathan Edwards clarifies this in his essay in Freedom of the Will. He says, listen to Edwards, that which appears most inviting and has the greatest tendency to excite and induce, to excite and induce the choice 
is what I call the strongest motive. Edwards goes on to say, and in this sense, the will is always determined by the strongest motive. That means, among other things, that if you don't have a new heart, you will always give in to your strongest motive, and that strongest motive will never, ever be righteousness. Well, Herod is no different. And he, like all men, will go to extreme measures to obtain pleasure. But listen carefully to me at this point, because I would say that the real irony here is that Herod's pursuit of pleasure is not extreme enough. You say, why do you say that? Well, because, you see, lasting pleasure can only be found in Christ. And the prerequisite for eternal and infinite pleasure is death to self. Herod loved himself too much. No, no, he can't die to himself. He, he has no conception of pleasure in God because his pleasure is all wrapped up with the horizontal, himself, earth, worldly things. Herod can't, he loved himself too much. He was too busy making his own mud pies. Listen to C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud, ply, mud pies in a, because he cannot imagine what, a, what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's Herod's problem. He's making mud pies. And he's happy to make mud pies because he doesn't care about pleasure in God. He's never tasted pleasure in God. Friends, Beware, as an application, beware of the seductive and terribly deceptive nature of worldly pleasure. Beware of that. It promises ultimate satisfaction, but it will never get you there. It will never get you there. Understand that true and ultimate pleasure can only be found in God. He's the fountain of real, final, and lasting pleasure. One of the songs we sang was focusing on that fountain idea. This is because God is infinite. Do you understand this? The fact that God is infinite means that He is the source of joy and happiness. He's the ultimate source. He's the end of all pleasure. He is the chief of all pleasure. Which is why the Westminster Confession of Faith so aptly says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the chief end, because there is no greater enjoyment than God Himself. Nothing. There's no higher end. There's no higher pleasure. The world has nothing to give us, ultimately. The world has nothing to give us in light of pleasure. Sure, the pleasures of this world may satisfy you for a moment, but in the end, it will ruin you. To my lost friend who's here, do you realize that? Pleasure of this world will ruin you. Listen to the words of Thomas Brooks in his book entitled Apples of Gold. He's speaking of worldly pleasures. I love this. I love his language. Listen to this. He says this. Pleasure is a beautiful harlot sitting in her chariot whose four wheels are pride, gluttony, lust, and idleness. The two horses are prosperity and abundance. The two drivers are idleness and security. Her companions and followers are guilt, grief, late repentance, if any at all and often death and ruin. 
Many great men and many strong men and many rich men and many hopeful men and many young men have come to their ruin by her, but none of them ever enjoyed full satisfaction from her. Earthly pleasure is a harlot. It will lie to you. And Herod was duped. Herod doesn't have a clue where pleasure is ultimately found. Well, note then the third thing about Herod. He wasn't just a lover of pleasure, but he was a lover of forbidden pleasure. Herod Antipas, Mark 6, what a mess. Look at verse 17. It says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his, brother's, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. Okay, I don't know if you heard that, but the last half of the verse tells us that Herod Antipas married Herodias. Wait, wait a minute. I thought that I thought that Herodias was Philip's wife. It was. After all, that's what John rebukes him for in verse eighteen. Philip was his brother. This is a twisted up mess, but it goes something like this. Listen carefully to me. If I had a chart, I would show you, but just you have to listen hard. This is this is so twisted. Just listen to this. Philip was Herod's half-brother. He was a ruler of another fourth of the kingdom. Meanwhile, Herod had another half-brother, a third half-brother, named Aristobulus. Aristobulus came from Herod the Great, this great old man, from the second marriage of him. Anyway, Aristobulus was Herod and Philip's brother. So three brothers, Herod, Aristobulus, and Philip. And Aristobulus had a daughter. Her name was Herodias. Uh Uh-oh. Okay, her name is Herodias, and guess who Aristobulus' daughter married? Aristobulus' brother. Do you, do you see what's going on here? She married, Herodias married her half-brother Philip. His half-brother Philip. Aristobulus' half-brother Philip. That means Herodias married her half-uncle. This is really messed up. Anyways, Herod decided to visit his brother Philip in Rome. And while he went there, he seduced Herodias. So he ruins his previous marriage, and he ends up marrying his brother's wife, who is his half-niece. That means that Herodias married another half-uncle for the second time. So Herodias was married to two different uncles, and Herod had ruined his first marriage in favor of marrying his niece. This means that he committed adultery with his niece. There's also another name for this. It's called incest. This is sick. Basically, this is the first century episode of Jerry Springer. (laughs) This is messed up. Folks, look at this. This is about as dysfunctional as you can possibly get. But concerning all this foolishness, let let me make a point of application here. An illegitimate marriage is no marriage at all. It doesn't really matter what Herodias thinks. Even though she thinks that She's Herod's new wife because she had a new ceremony. She will never be anyone other than Philip's wife. That means Herod was not really her husband, but her adulterer. Her real husband was Philip, which was a perverted arrangement to begin with because it was her uncle. And it was also incestuous. This is messed up. Look, this is why John the Baptist so emphatically says in verse 18, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. In fact, the imperfect aspect of the Greek here carries the idea that John kept 
warning Herod and repeatedly told him over and over, this is not lawful, this is not lawful, you must not do this. This is also why in verse 19, Herodias nursed a grudge against John the Baptist. She hated John the Baptist because John loved Herod's soul. John loved her soul. She hated him for that. Herodias wanted to kill John. And that's not surprising. Look who her granddad is. Herod the Great, who murdered his own sons. Look at this lineage of murder and violence and sexual deviancy. whole family's messed up. So it's not surprising at all that Herodias wants to kill John. And, and, and she has a murderous heart. It runs in the family. Folks, it runs in the family. And this is why there is such a thing as generational sin. People talk like that. And I'm not saying that people aren't responsible for their own sin. So don't hear me saying that. You are responsible for your sin and your choices. But there is something to be said about the stain, about the pollution of generations. Sinful habits passed down and modeled from one generation to the next. So the old saying goes, more is caught than taught. People just learn from their parents. They learn from how their parents are, and it's true. And then there's another saying, and it's stupid. And that saying is this, do what daddy says, not what daddy does. That's ridiculous. Don't ever say that to your children. If you love your children, you will live like you want them to live. Have some integrity and be the very thing yourself that you want them to be. I mean, it's unbelievable, the hypocrisy. It's also sad when faithful men of God love people enough to warn them of their sin, think of John the Baptist, only in, to, to get in return rejection. I mean, few men have the boldness to walk into a situation like this with a king, you know, and confront him. And if you come across one of these guys, these John the Baptist-like figures in your life, love them, cling to them. Because I'll tell you, those are true friends. The guy that's like Nathan, the prophet that goes to David, that's a true friend for you. Cling to those people. Love them. Hold them closely. That's true love. Also note this, how seductive and enslaving sin is. For Herod, the beauty of a seductress, the lust of his flesh, were all it took to cast aside his fear of God his respect for God's law, the insights and concerns of his community, the integrity of his political office, and the care and consideration of his real wife, his children, friends, reputation, body, soul, and everything else. Throws it all away. What a fool he was. And what's even sadder is I bet no one close to Herod even confronted him on this. I bet they just left him in his sin. I bet all of Herod's friends and companions and all of his guys in his inner circle, they just let it go. I bet they didn't say anything to him. I bet they just, just let him go with his godless and destructive behavior. And how like our society is that? We all know it's wrong, but no one wants to talk about it. And if we do talk about it, it's gossip, isn't it? In your office, you know, somebody's sleeping with somebody else, and so we'll talk about that. But nobody will go up to that guy and say it's wrong. It's not right. You know, about that guy, you know, that guy who did that thing, shh, shh, just, just keep your mouth shut about that. You know, don't say anything, just let the chips fall where they will. What happened to courage? To look a person in the eyes and tell them that's sin, this is wrong. What happened to that? Where's the integrity? Friends, this is especially egregious in the church. Oh, 
we could talk about this forever, the, the destructive nature of this in the church. When public sin is left unchecked, unrebuked, and soul care is not taking place in the community of faith, the fear of man is a stronger impulse than the fear of God. Such a church, look, folks, that kind of a church is in big trouble. Big trouble. It's terribly destructive. And we need to be willing to confront sin in each other like Nathan did for, for, uh, for David. And Paul provides us with a model. What does Paul say? Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. I love the redemptive nature of that. Isn't that great? But is that happening? This is a healthy church. This type of a church that functions this way is a healthy church, willing to confront sin when sin is there. So fourth, notice another thing about Herod. Herod is an unprincipled man. Verse 20. Good verse 20. Herod is an unprincipled man. He's completely unprincipled. He's flighty. He's capricious. He's here today and gone tomorrow. Uh, you see this in his marital infidelity. I mean, isn't that clear? He, he's here today and gone tomorrow on his own marriage. Much less in life. <clears throat> you see it also in his relationship to John the Baptist. On the one hand, he liked John. And he wanted to protect him from the murderous intentions of his wife. That's why he imprisoned her, John. On the other hand, he's unwilling to ultimately listen to John or heed his advice. I mean, how, how, how amazing is that? He, so capricious, back and forth. Oh, I like John, he's a neat guy, I respect him. But then I don't want to listen to him ultimately. You know, make, do something with your life, Herod. Make a decision. Stand on conviction. Be a man of principle. He lacks conviction. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. That's good. Then it says, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Greatly perplexed. When he, hold on a second, let's back up. When John heard, when Herod heard John, he was greatly perplexed. I'm sorry, but what's perplexing about Stop sleeping with your niece. She's not your wife. Really? What's perplexing about that? Why is Herod so confused? What's perplexing about, hey, Herod, you're a pervert and you need to repent of your adulterous and incestuous relationship? What's perplexing about God's law in Leviticus 20, 21, which reads, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. What's perplexing about Leviticus eighteen sixteen? You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You see, for Herod, perplexity is situational. You've heard of situational ethics? This is situational perplexity. He knows the score. He's not stupid. He's just unwilling to give up his pleasure. Herod knew full well that he had sinned by abandoning his own wife in favor of his niece. Come on. And by imprisoning the holy and righteous John the Baptist, he's just repressing the voice in his conscience. He's suppressing it. John McKenzie, in his instructive book, Souls in the Making States, the worst forms of functional mental disorder arise from a repressed conscience. I think that's interesting. Not dealing with sin. 
just, just, just repressing it and repressing it and repressing it and repressing it. And if you repress sin like that, it's going to have disastrous consequences. And that's why it has to be dealt with in Christ. Friends, it is no use repressing things that you know to be true. Forgiveness starts with ownership of your sin and failure. Herod should have learned this from David, who committed gross sin in himself, including adultery. David, this, this, great, this great man of God, but yet on the other hand, a full of so much sin. And, and, and what did David say in Psalm 32? Herod should have learned from David, David's example. David says this, While I kept guilty silence, while I kept guilty silence, my strength was spent with grief. Your hand was heavy on me. My soul found no relief. But when I owned my trespass, my sin hid not from you. When I confessed my transgression, you forgave me. Finally, a release from one sin, the, the lifting of a burden, not because it was suppressed, not because it was masked with alcohol or drugs or some illicit sexual pleasure. No, that will not solve your problem. It's when you own that sin and it's when you say, that is my sin, I have done that, I am that man, I am guilty. Oh God, forgive me, save me, this wretch that I am, take me God and re- recreate me and make me new. Friends, do you have a guilty conscience? Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Let Him remove your guilt. Only He can. Don't suppress it. So much more could be said of John, but his greatest sin was refusing to hear the message of repentance from John the Baptist. He had a window of opportunity. It appears that he had a rather large window of opportunity. Think about it. After all, John was in prison. And he could have spent as much time with, with John as he wanted. Indeed, he did spend some time with John, but none of his warnings were ultimately heeded. How sad. What a sad life this is. Friends, for some of you, you need to remember this morning that your window of opportunity is closing. Sermons like these will not always be heard. There came a time for Herod when his window closed. And no, I'm not speaking of his death. I'm speaking of the hardening that took place in his heart. It's kind of scary. It's almost like he reached a place of no return. It's like he lost interest. You know, this John guy preaching, he was kind of interesting for a while, but I'm kind of over that now. Besides, i got a birthday party to attend. My own. See, what was for Herod a birthday was for Herodias a day of death. This party got out of hand. Things got, things got nasty really quick. Look at verse 22. Philip and Herodias' daughter... Salome dances before Herod. Her name's Salome. We know this from history. This would be Herod's second niece. She probably isn't more than 12 or 13. Based on the family genealogy and how old she could be, probably 12 or 13. This whole thing is quite disturbing. Not only does she dance before Herod, but her dance pleases Herod. 
A 12 or 13-year-old niece pleasing her uncle with a dance? Besides food and music and dancing, there appears to be intoxication in great measures of it. Herod seems out of his mind after the dance pleased him. He says in verse 22, it's completely irrational. Ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. I mean, first of all, he doesn't have the power to do that. And secondly, even if he did, it would be, the, it'd be the, foolish, the most foolish thing he's ever said. And he promised her, saying, even up to half my kingdom. Half my kingdom? Half the kingdom for a dance from your niece? I mean, how twisted is this? A 12-year-old niece. Are you serious? The foolishness of this promise is beyond reason. The shamefulness of this night. Herod drunk, out of his mind, a degrading mother offering her daughter as an exotic dancer before her own family members, the outlandish promises of Herod, his stupid and unreasoned fear of breaking a wicked promise in front of his buddies, or the grisly image of a teenage girl hurrying to her mother with a freshly served head of John the Baptist on a platter, staining her young, blood-soaked 12-year-old hands? How sick is this? I mean, how perverted does sin make people? People of God, we need to be freed from this. Oh, I pray that I pray that God's Spirit would move in such a way to realize the destructive nature of sin. It will ruin your life. This will ruin you. Of this poor girl, I think about her, she's 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 a mess already. She's twelve or thirteen and is a mess. What has happened? Friends, this is what happens when the word of God falls on rocky soil. It produces glad gladly entertained, like Herod but half-hearted convictions. All of John's faithfulness to Herod had come to this. Perplexity, what he said was perplexity, had become refusal. And eagerness to hear had become complete and utter gospel deafness. Oh, this is so sad. The window of opportunity was now closing on Herod. He had John in his backyard. He couldn't tell him all about Christ, all about the coming Messiah. He's in his backyard. And he's closing. The window's closing. Oh, Herod, please wake up, man. Please wake up. John's here. He'll tell you all about Jesus. No, it's closing. It's closing in on Herod. Now the preacher, now the voice that so tenderly and lovingly urged Herod to repent was silenced. It was silenced. His head was lopped off. His tongue would no longer speak words of conviction to Herod and his family. No, Herodias saw to it. How wicked she is, Herodias saw to it that not only was John the Baptist dead, but that he was beheaded for proof that from this day forward and forever John the Baptist would be silent. And that's her judgment. If you want to silence a man of God, you kill him. But that's your judgment because he was your only source of life. And you ruined it. No, Herodias saw to it that he was dead. John the Baptist did not... Oh, this is amazing. How much like Jesus is John the Baptist? Think about this. And like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, John the Baptist did not open his mouth, but gladly received the eternal reward of martyrdom. Bishop Hall says, Oh, happy birthday, not of Herod, but of John the Baptist. 
Now John enters into his glory. This blessed forerunner of Christ said himself, I must decrease, but he, he must increase. Indeed, John was decreased, but in glory he was increased. For one minute's pain, he received endless joy. And just as John preceded the Savior on earth, so John precedes him into heaven. Indeed, he was the forerunner of Jesus. Which is why, before this flashback, Herod was so troubled in his conscience, thinking that perhaps Jesus was John the Baptist, but he wasn't. He wasn't. Oh, the sin of Herod. His great sin was not the rejection of John. It was not even the beheading of John. No, his great sin was the rejection of the one John came to proclaim. His real sin was the rejection of Jesus. And so on the eve of the crucifixion, Jesus was brought before none other than Herod. And Herod was glad that his curiosity had been satisfied at last. You see, it wasn't John the Baptist who had come after him. It's just Jesus. He didn't need to fear anymore. His conscience was now perfectly hardened and deceived. There was no trace of old convictions now. He asked Jesus many things, and Christ answered him nothing. Almost as if Christ were saying, it's of no use to speak to you. the judgment of a hardened heart when God gives a man over. It's like Herod has no chance. It's like it's over. He doesn't even care. So Herod and his men mocked Jesus, and they sent him back to Pilate. And there Herod let his last chance of salvation go. And so the window of opportunity had finally closed. And so the window of opportunity is closing on your life. But the Word of God, coming always, brings with it a moment of opportunity. A call to repentance is a call to stop and a call to start believing in one who is greater than John. That's the call that stands before you every time you hear the Word of God. Friends, can I ask you this? How much time do you think you have? If you're here this morning as a Herod, how many times do you think you will hear a preacher's voice? Is that number of times infinite? Have you perhaps heard half of the sermons that you'll ever hear in your life? Are you nearing your final tenth? Or is this the last percentile of pleas that you will hear from a servant of God? I don't know the answer to that question. And you better recognize that you don't either. Oh, the irony of it all. John the Baptist, now forever known to Herod as John the Beheaded, has played his role in this great redemptive drama. He came as the last of the Old Testament prophets. He came to prepare the way for a real king. His message was a message of repentance. His proclamation was a proclamation that one far greater than he would come after him. And so he was martyred. But in this cruel death, we are given a glimpse of the very fate of Jesus himself. His ministry will eventually take him to Jerusalem, where he too will be rejected and imprisoned and put to death 
But Jesus' head will not be put on a platter. He will conquer death and the grave as he lays down his life for the sheep. Since he is far greater than John, he will save his people from their sins. For his death, for in his death is the very death of death itself. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise and thanks that we have a window of opportunity to respond to your word. Even as it says, carpe diem, seize the day. Lord, we want to seize this moment. Oh God, oh God, don't let us be like Herod. Or Herodias, or Herod the Great, or this whole perverted family, God. But we know that without your grace, we will be just like them. Be merciful to us, God. Please, on this Mother's Day... Let us have mothers, Lord, who will produce with godly husbands a lineage like, like you want us to be. And not like the Herodian dynasty. God, let us make use of this window of opportunity. In Jesus' name.